Tamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa, that's Wednesday, the 13th of July. I know. Call Nathan Rarere, aho. Coming up, senior citizens are afraid to leave home because of declining mask use. We're going to hear from Grey Power's president about that. Wellington's Sky Stadium, aka Caketon, scrambling to get staff thanks to COVID and winter bugs. We've got more from the stadium's CEO today. And buckle up for time travel. The world's most powerful telescope has captured images of starlight from billions of years ago. It's a new window into the history of our universe. And today we're going to get a glimpse of the first light to shine through that window. Light from other worlds, orbiting stars, far beyond our own. Light where stars were born and from where they die. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. Let's uh, talk about the funeral in Japan. That's the funeral of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. It's just taken place at a Buddhist temple in Tokyo. Mr Abe was assassinated at a rally in the city of Kashihara last week. Huge crowds lined the streets of the Japanese capital to pay their respects. The BBC's Rupert Winfield Hayes has this report. Shinzo Abe's funeral was supposed to be a private affair close to all but family and close friends. But Japan's public had other ideas. By early afternoon, tens of thousands were lining the streets, determined to say goodbye to Japan's longest-serving prime minister. As the funeral cortege passed, they bowed their heads towards his widow, sitting in the front seat. Others began to cry. We will never have anybody as great as Abe-san again. I want people to know how much we loved him. For many of the people who've turned out here today to say goodbye to Mr Abe, it was his political longevity that is most important. It was that sense of stability and security that he brought back to Japanese politics that they're most grateful for. But in many other ways, Mr Abe was a deeply divisive political figure. To his admirers, Shinzo Abe was a great statesman who built strong alliances with fellow democracies. Most significantly, he broke with Japan's pacifist constitution. For the first time since World War II, Japanese troops would be allowed to fight alongside allies beyond its shores. I think uh, Abe was determined to get out from the post-war pacifist constitution. Because the, the idea of this constitution, it was that Japan should rely uh, its security to the goodwill of the world people. It's a nonsense. So Abe wanted to get out from this uh, fallacy. But critics say Mr. Abe's views on World War II history were deeply troubling. In South Korea, there was huge anger at his refusal to accept Japan was responsible for the wartime system of sexual servitude known as comfort women. I think in terms of facing uh, face-to-face with the fact of the, uh, of the uh, history issues, um, I guess Mr. Abe is a revisionist, particularly on the issue of the comfort woman uh, issue. I think it's become now a taboo to talk about it in Japan. Mr. Abe's legacy is far from being settled, but he led this country for longer than anyone else. And for that, people here are grateful. 
It's eight past five if you're listening live to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Let's go to the other side of the Tasman where the Prime Minister, uh, Albanese, is actually about to head off. I think he's off to Fiji to join the leaders at the Pacific Islands Forum. But Pam Corkery is holding the fort and that's where she is right now. Kia ora, Pam. How are you? I'll be holding it for Elbow while he's away. I'm well, thank you, my dad. <laughs> hey, what's, what's, um, what's Australia's plan for re-engaging with the Pacific Nations? Well, it's kind of um, together, united, will never be defeated kind of thing for oh, Pacific yeah. Nations. And after the neglect of the last government, it's through showing respect and providing lots of money. Um, you know, and it's obviously relating to China's work to establish a military foothold in the Pacific. That's the big motivator. Um, and it has forced the new approach from Canberra and to cover that neglect. Albanese is expected to recommit in, uh, to a $6.5 million Australia-Pacific Defence School. I don't know what that even is. And an extra half a billion for development assistance. It's very delicate stuff up there at the moment, it isn't is. it? It is. Yeah. It is very much. Now, I was going to say you might have seen, but of course you won't have seen because that's the whole point of them, um, US stealth bombers, uh, bombers visiting Australia at the moment. I'm going to be honest, I know they're horrible machines of death, but they look very cool. But tell me about why are they, why are they in Australia? Um, the same reason, see before, talking about um, the Pacific, we've got at least four nuclear-capable B-2 stealth bombers. They flew from Missouri to just outside Brisbane this week. Um, and you're right, I was reading about them. They evade detection, so they can sneakily come in, but it's been well publicised. We've seen them on television last night. They're conducting strategic deterrence missions in support of a free and open Indo-Pacific. There you go. Okay. They're the, they're the same bomb squadron, 393, uh, yeah, I know my military stuff, <laughs> that um, they're the only uh, plane squadron ever to bomb anywhere. You know, that was um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, nuclear bomb. oh yeah. Yes. Okay, all right. Oh, yuck, yeah. oh, yuck, yeah. yeah no, moving on, yeah. moving on, yeah. Oh, well, let, let's stick it, keep it in the air, although on the ground. Why are, van- <laughs> why are vandals targeting the boss of Qantas and his house? Why? So many reasons. Yes, Alan Joyce in his $19 million harbour front mansion, which he just bought a couple of months ago, um, he has drawn the wrath of many people and they yeah, egged and toilet papered his house. So that'll show him. Um, look, the national carrier Qantas has just behaved so badly in terms of its treatment of workers during the p- pandemic and then um, reduced service quality since the flights returned. Most Most weekends, we will get a report of travel chaos for passengers. Now, the airline pocketed $855 million in JobKeeper money from the government and then um, stood down two-thirds of its workforce, (laughs) like 20,000 out of 30,000. So, you know, and then they took on illegal casual crew, which was also um, overturned by the federal court. Mr. Joyce, um, who's been grumpy with the public for not being patient, you know, when it takes six hours to wait on the phone, did have, before the pandemic, a salary of $24 million a year. Yeah. Can, yeah. can, we, can we just point it's out... down to two now. 
Can we just point out to those businesses that are complaining, going, oh, we're trying to rehire staff and now they want more money. This is why. Because yeah. staff were just cut like this. They're going, no, I know what you'll do to me. No, 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 no. Now it costs this much to come back. It's how it works. Pretty simple. Hey, uh, finally, the um, the Federal Health Minister, I think this is quite interesting because this is going to have to happen here soon, uh, telling Aussies they've got to take responsibility for their, home, uh, for their own health. And this is all uh, with this call to reintroduce mask mandates. And also rampant COVID cases. Yeah. I gather from your tone, you agree with him. Health Minister Mike Butler, he's, he's delivered a strong message and just said, listen, roughly, you're grown-ups. We're deep into the third year of the pandemic. People have to take control of their own circumstances, take responsibility, make your own choice. So that's over masks and all the things that created such resentment. I don't know why it's so difficult. If we have our seatbelts on and things like that, this is a dangerous time. Just put a flaming mask on. But I'm a sovereign citizen, Pam. I'm a sovereign citizen, and I've got... Boy, if you, if you want some uh, some entertainment to go, what is happening here? Uh, have a look at Sovsit of the these people lecturing these these police or whatever with why they don't have to do things with a completely made up law. But the the it's like basically you know like those people that learnt how to speak elf after watching Lord of the Rings. You know, like well done to you, but I don't know if it's going to be helpful for you. Pam Corkery, you're always wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. And this is Pam Corkery every week out of Australia. Masks, you're doing them. Uh, have you, th- we, we just want to know, can we just get a quick poll of the audience? Um, uh, have you had COVID-19 and this year's flu? Have you had those? 2101, let us know. Which was worse, by the way, is what we want to know, just while we're, we're, we're comparison shopping with the two of them. But if you have had both, goodness me, how horrible for you. First off, I'm pleased that, hopefully I'm pleased you threw them. But secondly, which one was worse? Uh, 2101 or email first up at rnz.co.nz. Just trying to put a little bit of research together. Well, the Reserve Bank looks set to increase the official cash rate for the third time in a row later today as the Reserve Bank tries to rein in inflation. So joining us now is Infometrics economist Brad Olson. Brad, I'm so sorry. We we get you up very early. Thank you very much for being here with us. Oh, always a pleasure to join you guys. <laughs> hey, how does now? This is I think we're going back almost to third and fourth form economics here. Refresh my mind. How does raising the OCR help with inflation? Well, the, the, the expectation is pretty simple, although it's also pretty challenging for households. If you raise interest rates, you raise people's uh, mortgage repayments, you make it more expensive to service current debt, uh, more difficult to take on further debt, easier to save. So people, the expectation is that people will be spending more on their mortgages, there's less cash left over for other things in the economy, and so you limit the total amount of demand for goods and services out there. So look, straight up, households are expected to spend less on other things to try and meet their mortgage repayments. That's supposed to lower the amount of activity happening in the economy closer to a level of where we can actually supply. Because let's be clear, at the moment, we're pretty much overcooking the economy. We're trying to do too much with too little. Okay. So inflation currently, it's a 30-year high here in New Zealand, so 6.9%. Do you think that raising the OCR will have an impact on that? I think, uh, I mean, over time, remembering, uh, and, and this is the challenge, right, is that inflation's fairly quick. It, it, it happens, it's happening right now. Uh, the official cash rate normally acts with sort of a 12 to 18 month lag. So, of course, although the official cash rate might increase today, 
and over the next week you'd expect to see the retail banks that'll lift their retail rates. Uh, if you're not refixing your mortgage within the next week, well, it's not going to affect you quite as quickly. So by the time we see everyone move off their very low interest rates onto these much higher interest rates, there is that delayed effect coming through. But we are certainly getting the early signs that things are starting to move in a different direction. Uh, consumer confidence has fallen back quite sharply. We're seeing that spending just isn't sort of holding the same amount of momentum that it has been in prior months. So there is a feeling that, uh, you know, there's a bit more of that slowdown that realistically we need to see coming through to just try and uh, bring the economy down from the rolling boil that it's been on down to a bit more of a simmer. It, 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 I look around the world, I see lots of inflation news. A friend of mine in Arizona told me last week, man, we're, we're nearly at 10% or whatever. So if I have a look at US and, and Europe, are we reasonably in good shape as far as inflation goes? Well, we're certainly not at the levels of some countries, you know, parts of Europe, at, like you say, you know, 9-10%. The US, I think, their latest coming in at uh, 8.6, the highest in 40 years. But, and this is one of the key differences, we're not nearly as exposed to some of the uh, global energy markets. On fuel and diesel uh, and petrol and that, yep but not in terms of natural gas and similar. What worries us here in New Zealand is that despite that, we've still got high inflation. And what we continue to see in the numbers, and this comes out from Treasury, uh, we've heard this very clearly through their forecast, we can see this in the numbers ourselves, that there's a lot of domestic pressure coming forward as well. Our worry is that if we, we are, we're able to get through the sort of hopefully transitory pressures in the energy market, globally. New Zealand might still find itself with quite a lot of uh, hot economic demand here locally, which is going to keep uh, the prices going. And a clear, clear example of that, right, is we look at the likes of jib uh, and building materials and similar across the country. That's not because of anything that's happening globally at the moment. That's because we're trying to build over 50,000 homes all at once. And because of that, because of the other supply chain disruptions, naturally, we are starting to see those hits. But there is a lot of domestically based activity that's continuing to hit the economy. Brad, thank you so much, sir. There is Brad Olson, uh, Infometrics Economist, here with the latest on what's happening with inflation. At 18 past five, uh, I'm, I'm just the same Nathan Rarity I was uh, at the top of the show. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Coming up, we're going to head to the Middle East very shortly. And then James Parr is going to throw some light on the clearest and most colourful snapshots of space we have ever seen. Each Wednesday, the First Up plane touches down in Doha. Joining us there is our correspondent, Alex Baird. Morena, Alex. Kia ora, Nathan. Okay, I want to talk about this UN Security Council. They've extended a system to deliver aid to the areas to areas of Syria. What's behind this timetable? Yeah, so, so basically there's been this one specific route that takes aid from southern Turkey into northwestern Syria. It's essential aid for around 4 million people, 4.5 million people, nearly the population of New Zealand. And basically the only way this is running is by a UN mandate. So all sides have agreed we're going to allow aid to pass through this area into rebel-held areas of Syria. Now, the mandate for this to continue operating was up on Sunday, which basically meant that aid could no longer be delivered to millions of people who depend on it to survive. And it went to the UN Security Council, and the thorn in the side of the UN Security Council, Russia, vetoed every attempt that others were making to, to have the mandate extended by 12 months. Instead, Russia decided that they wanted to extend the mandate for six months but basically, there's been a bit of toing and froing at the UN Security Council. And I think what you're seeing here is Russia using an issue which has nothing to do with the Ukraine war or anything like that to really get back 
at the other side to get back at the, the, the people it sees as aggressors. But luckily, this has been extended now for another six months. So these four and a half million people in Syria who depend on it will be able to get that. But the question is, this whole thing comes back up again in six months when it could have been easily sold for another year. So yeah. here's hoping that in six months are up, that aid can continue to get in. Let's help these poor people. Let's go to, to Egypt now, where apparently it is not a good idea to make joke Facebook events up. Tell me about this <laughs> and the serious repercussions now uh, for the, the organisers. Well, I love this. It's also quite sad, though. So basically, a group of guys had decided that they wanted to find who the one true Batman was, and they made an event on Facebook. <laughs> there were all four people that were going to meet up in this at this event, and they were going to... For those, a lot of people might not be aware, there's this meme that goes around online where a bunch of different Batmans, I think, are pointing to each other, trying to work out which is the real well, Batman. And anyway, they were all, yes. yeah, all going to meet up and they were going to work out who was the real one. And so this was all very innocuous. It was all very innocent. But um, Egypt has a very big history as of late of protest action. It has a government which is essentially controlled by the military. And the, the state-backed media picked up on it and said, hey, this could turn into something really bad. This could turn into a riot. Um, they haven't applied for the appropriate, um, they haven't applied to be able to have a meeting like this. And so basically the, the next thing they thought they should do is, is arrest these poor guys. So it went from being a little Batman event to poor guys ending up in the clinker. Oh no, and they'd gone in to look sharp yeah. and bought their authentic looking costumes for $18 and they're all all set to go and they got ruined by a headline fears of Batman well, riot. They could do it in a cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, they might that's true. It hasn't the event hasn't finished, has it? In fact, it makes it even more Batman if you do it that way. Um also uh, this is tell me about this Iran supplying drones in the Ukraine but to help Russia. Yeah, so you can think of many reasons as to why this is happening. Basically, U.S. intelligence has found that Iran is preparing. So they haven't done it yet, but preparing to supply Russia with hundreds of drone aircraft, including advanced model models capable of firing missiles. You can imagine where these would end up. They'd probably end up on the, on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. But the big question is, why would Iran wade into something like this? At the moment, Iran is trying to get its, its Iran nuclear deal back on track and to try and get these... Um, sanctions which has been facing from the West dropped in return for, for, for kind of playing the ball game of the West and, and pulling back on some of that nuclear activity. But then in the background now, Iran is saying, hey, Russia, do you want some of our drones? So it'll be interesting to see what the fallout of this indeed, if it turns out to be, to be true. And I would not be surprised if it is because Iran's really, I mean, they're obviously choosing a side and they have been facing, as I said, Better sanctions from the West, which, whether you argue whether they're right or wrong, it's had a real impact on the people of Iran, and seems like they're turning to Russia. So, wait and see what happens here. We will. Alex, thank you very much for your time today again. That's Alex Beard in Doha. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Let's have a look at uh, celebrity birthdays uh, on this day, the 13th of July. Patrick Stewart, Star Trek, X-Men. I got to go to a David Letterman show once and it was Stewart night and he was one of the guests. He was great. He's 82 years old today. 
Harrison Ford turns 80 today. You might know him as Indiana Jones or maybe Han Solo or, you know, the myriad of other characters that he played. Apparently didn't like Han Solo. <laughs> Didn't like Star Wars. <laughs> was such a grump about it. I said, no, nah, I don't like it. The character's thin. I asked, I said, write him out, kill him. What they did was they actually offered that role to a ton of others, and it was really interesting having a look. Imagine these others as Han Solo. Kurt Russell, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, no, Steve Martin, Jack Nicholson, Burt Reynolds, and uh, Christopher Walken uh, were all considered for the role uh, before Harrison Ford came in and took that one. And remember they said, don't pick up that marijuana weed. You'll never amount to anything. And Richard Cheech Marin went, okay. And he and his friend Cheech and Chong did quite well. Grammy Award winner. He was also the first Celebrity Jeopardy champion in 1992. And his father was a 30-year veteran of the LAPD. That is Cheech from Cheech and Chong, who's 76 years old. Today, Uno Rubik was born on this day in 1944. Invented a toy in the 40s called the Rubik's Cube that's people are still flocking to and doing very quickly. On this day in 1939 Frank Sinatra recorded his first ever single. His career went okay. It was called From the Bottom of My Heart. And on this day in 1923 the Hollywood sign was dedicated. Yeah, and you may know this, it was originally it spelt out Hollywood Land. It was dedicated uh, for a housing development. It was originally placed there for it. Uh, the land got taken away and just left Hollywood. And there it is standing on Mount Lee in the Hollywood Hills. And that is uh, the day of our life that we like to Called July the 13th. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Joining us from the business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. More than Giles. More than you, Nathan. Yeah, I see you want to, uh, there's, there's a bit of laundering, but can I just jump to this this thing here? Because I wonder what's going to happen to the rubbish bins around uh, West Auckland when they, they're they going to have trouble being filled with things around my area because I see a shortage of bourbon is affecting RTDs. Tell me about this. Tr- trust you to cut to the drink, eh? Yep. Straight away. Right there. Apparently, I didn't realise it, but because uh, I'm not an RTT drinker, but um, it would say it would seem that there's a global shortage of bourbon, um, and that's uh, being caused in part because like Jeremy, our producer. Well, he he says he makes his own hooch, but oh, I, yeah. I don't know about that, and <laughs> we won't get him into trouble with customs or other people. No, like no, anyway, sure. uh, but apparently. Uh, shipping is a problem. Manufacturing of it is, uh, obviously, with COVID disruptions in the States and elsewhere. Uh, and it, obviously, there there are two, there are various types of bourbon because the stuff in the bottles, uh, the brands that we know well, that uh, people will drink with Coke, for instance, um, that's not a problem. So there's obviously, there's an industrial grade of bourbon, which is used for RTDs, although I thought in some instances they used uh, whey alcohol, but um, and and the shortage of bourbon has led to production being halted of some brands here in New Zealand. And you know, one of the things that surprised me was apparently RTDs. And that's for those who don't know, ready to drink, mm-hmm. um, and it's a mix of bourbon Pretty and coke or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they make up nearly forty percent of the sales of spirits in this country. Well, I think they appeal to younger drinkers, don't they? That, I think that was always the thing that was That's why they put were in them. As they said, it's just candy water to try and get them on board. Yep, yep. No, I mean, I 
you know, pass by the bottle store on occasions and uh, I just see the young folk coming out there, arms laden with them. Yeah. Um, and you note, of course, that you know some of them are actually advertised on TV as well. So uh, clearly, as you say, some people regard them as a bit of lolly water um, and for the brewing industry, clearly seen as a, a way of getting custom and getting people perhaps to move up the drinks chain uh, in due course when they've got a bit more disposable income. Which, of course, given what Brad Olson was telling us a little bit before, we may not have quite so yeah, yeah, much yeah. of yeah, after this afternoon. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, yeah, where I live, the the cans are everywhere, uh, constantly. Um, you know, in a, in an area where where you can park up and do a bit of that because I think obviously heading inside to an establishment nowadays what well, they're charging so much for a beer uh, that I think this is what they do it's 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 not like it's brand new it's not like this this generation's invented it I, I believe that happened in oh, my day yes. as well of, of course you, you know, know preload it, 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 it's the same for yeah. every generation we just have different brands and different types of booze to, yeah. to get involved with Thank you very much, Giles Beckford, uh, with us from the business team, and he's got some interesting news on money laundering as well, and you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. If you would like to go and spend your New Zealand dollar, you can buy the following other money, 61.4 US cents, 90.68 Australian cents, 61 euro cents, 51.54 British pence, 4.13 yuan, 83.93 Japanese yen, 35.89 Russian rubles and five, just over five, 5.01 Solomon Island dollars. Well, if you have ever been interested in the origins uh, of uh, the uh, universe, now is a great time to be alive. As the world's most powerful telescope, the James Webb, shows us light beams from billions of years ago and in full colour. So pictures released yesterday and then some overnight show many wonders, including a snapshot of a galaxy cluster, which is called SMAX 0723. What a name. It's the deepest image that we've ever had of the universe. Here's what President Joe Biden said after the unveiling of the first picture. It's a new window into the history of our universe. And today we're going to get a glimpse of the first light to shine through that window. Light from other worlds, orbiting stars far beyond our own. Light where stars were born and from where they die. Light from the oldest galaxies, the oldest documented light in the history of the universe from over 13 billion, let me say that again, 13 billion years ago. It's hard to even fathom. Yeah. It is, it is hard to fathom. Don't get too excited, though, because that's not all of it. There's still heaps to come. Like, I saw a great piece yesterday that apparently that in, in the sky, if you look up at the sky, that photo that was taken is the same. If you hold your arm out at arm's length and just hold up a grain of sand, that's how much that covers. So there is so much, so much more to see. Uh, joining us now is uh, James Parr from the Open Space Agency. Kia ora, man. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you doing, Nadine? I'm quite wowed by all of these. You've had a chance to, to have a look at them. What, what's it like for you getting to look through these, and did you do the wow face? Oh, I did absolutely did the wow face, and it's amazing. My LinkedIn feed has exploded 
um, every single person I know is like sharing stuff and yeah, the excitement is, is massive amongst the space geek community, I have to say. So can you just explain for people, people might have seen this one yesterday and I imagine uh, the overnight images perhaps might not have made it yet to too many people, but might have seen it online or printed somewhere. That first image with, it, there was like a big sort of white star in the middle and then a whole lot of, it looks almost like a, a hippie's van from the 1970s on the side. <laughs> what, yeah. what are we seeing in, in that picture? Well, the first image. Well, that yeah, that is um, a deep field image, and so uh, actually a few. Well, it wasn't until um, sort of a, a way into Hubble's life cycle they realised that deep, deep field images were useful because essentially it was just black sky. No one, no one really sort of thought it was you know, worthwhile poking a telescope in that direction, and then they um, actually pointed Hubble at this deep field, this area of black black sky, and they realized that there were, you know, thousands of, of galaxies in there, and that kind of changed, you know, um, cosmology. So what they've done is exactly that, but they've now done it with this um, new telescope, which sees in the infrared. And so Hubble was able to see a little bit in the infrared, just to sort of smidgen, but James Webb, this is really a dedicated scope for the infrared, and that's why it's got the design it has. It's got those, um, you might have seen those um, those uh, sort of filaments, those sort of um, layered uh, structures which protect it from the sun's um, heat. Hmm. It's obviously in deep space, so it's very cold anyway, but this is able to see infrared without any, um, you know, excess heat coming from the Earth or the, or the sun. And it's also super cool to sort of close to absolute zero, so that's another, another thing which it does. And, of course... Um, the, the the stars the, the the light from these galaxies is is distorted into the infrared. So basically, as the light's coming towards us from the big bang, bang, it shifts to the infrared. And so we haven't been able to see that light before. This is the first time we've able been able to see it. So when they did this thing and they pointed at the deep field, it was like not just thousands of galaxies, but trillions. And this is the kind of mind blowing thing that people are getting their head around that inside every every you know pixel of that you know grain of sand held at arm's length is basically a, a galaxy like it's a it's a phenomenal amount of um of galaxies and of course each one has billions of stars and you know thousands and billions of of exoplanets and so our sort of sense of how big the universe is has just gone up in order of magnitude and that's why everyone's kind of getting so excited so james i know one of the things that uh people find hard to get to get our heads around is when they say to us, oh, this is going to look back and, you know, show us the Big Bang. Because I'm saying, but I'm looking at that photo and that's what that's the light right now. This is the photo. I can see it right there. So so what do they, what do they yeah. mean when they say we're going to look back in time? We're going to see the beginnings of this? Because as far as I understand, it was billions of years ago. Well, it was. And, um, you know, what you're looking at in that first deep field image, the reason it looks like a hippie's van, as he said, it's got this distortion, and that's called gravitational lensing, which Einstein predicted. And so there's a really big um, uh, galaxy in the middle of the picture, and that's creating this gravitational distortion. And so all the galaxies are behind that galaxy, we can now see they're being twisted a little bit, a bit like a lens. And so those galaxies are the ones which are in the very, very distant past, um, you know, 13 and a little bit uh, billion years ago. We sort of believe, based on um, redshift and some other calculations, that the the Big Bang happened 13.7 billion years ago. So this image essentially is when the universe, or sorry, those those parts of the image which have, have been distorted by the lensing, that light has been traveling for 13 billion years before it sort of gets to us. And that's kind of an amazing thought, really. Um, what happens before <laughs> that and the sort of 500 million years between the Big Bang and those galaxies, no one really knows, but 
you know, that's it's getting right back to the very primordial beginnings of, of the universe. So do you have any idea or do you know what they're hoping to do with James Webb in the future? I mean, I know they've just unveiled to us the most incredible thing and we're like, cool, what's next? Uh, but, you know, I'm still very much enjoying what's happening now. But what are the, do you know what the projects are for James Webb and what they're hoping to do with it? Yeah, well, the big one they're very excited by is exoplanets. And so this is the ability to look at an exoplanet, you know, a planet which is around another star and look at the spectra from its atmosphere. And we can um, see how that spectra, if that spectra changes, then we can sort of, I guess, conclude that that planet may be biologically regulated. And this is something which people are getting particularly excited by because, of course, the answer to if we're alone or not could be answered by James Webb. But James Webb really is only able to look at exoplanets from the local group. It's not going to look at all of those planets and all the galaxies we've just talked about. This is stuff which is much more local to us. Um, but it's, it's a really good question you asked, because if you'd asked that question of Hubble, um, of the 10 things which they see, they saw as Hubble's greatest hits, only one of them was planned. Right. All the rest were accidental discoveries by having this new instrument. And so I think that's the exciting thing about James Webb. It's got fuel for another 20 years. Um, you know, who knows what it's going to discover? Um, again, if we you know, apply the same ratio to uh, to Hubble, it could be that there's you know stuff that we can't imagine which will come out of this uh, this um, experiment. Awesome, James Parr. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, yeah, you will see many of those uh, pictures around, dear listener. They are they're amazing. They are absolutely amazing. Sat there yesterday and did the whole whoa, we're tiny. Uh, that was James Parr from the Open Space Agency. Twenty minutes to six, and Nathan Rarity, and you're listening to First Up here in RNZ National. Between now and six o'clock, we've uh, we've got uh, many things for you at the Pacific Islands Forum. Lithia Movuno stands by to talk about the latest. I think we've got some more countries that have decided not to be involved in it, and also uh, you might be in for a bit of a job if you've got some spare time and you want to work at Sky Stadium this weekend. We're going to speak to the top man, Shane Harmon, about that. Uh, US Vice President Kamala Harris is to address the Pacific Islands Forum later today, as the White House puts it, to underscore the commitment of the United States to the Pacific Islands region. Uh, This comes as another superpower. China continues to make inroads into the region, of course. Uh, Some people have concerns Beijing may have been behind Kiribati's shock decision to walk away from the forum. Uh, In Suva right now is Lithe Movuno. Bulavanaka, Lithe, how are you? Yandra and Marina Tunisian, I'm well, thank you. Tell me, how significant is it that Kamala Harris is uh, appearing? Super significant, Nathan. Um, I think that this is uh, something that the, the countries of the Pacific, particularly Micronesia, uh, are very excited uh, to have happen, particularly when uh, what you're going to be talking about, what the U.S. government has released yesterday, is something that the governments of the region actually asked for. So a uh, pretty big deal. Also, first time in, in history, I think, for a U.S. sitting vice president to be addressing the region. Ah. Now, there were suggestions, uh, well, people thought that China might be behind Kiribati's withdrawal from the um, forum. Have you heard more about that? Um, you know what? It's, it's, it's all of the conversation here right now, but there's no 
evidence, I must say. And yesterday, the, the Chinese foreign minister spokesperson actually uh, spoke to international media in Beijing to say that, you know, they respect regional solidarity, that what they actually want is for the Pacific Islands Forum to remain united, basically dispelling rumors that they had anything to do with this. Um, however, I'm not sh- too sure that people believe that. No. And, and have other countries pulled out now? No. At okay. present, it's still Kiribati that's pulled out. Okay. Um, I imagine then that climate change, um, that would be getting, uh, you know, the, the major attention. Has it been getting the attention that it should be? Um, no. Unfortunately, there's still quite a lot of conversation around China. There's a lot of conversation now around Kiribati and the civil agreement that the Micronesian states are meant to be signing at the forum later uh, tomorrow, actually. But now I think it's the new commitments to step up from the United States that is going to dominate all of the conversation today and quite possibly tomorrow. Lisa, that, that's got to be—it's got to be really frustrating if you're a Pacific Island nation. You're trying to go look. The things that affect us mainly is the the ocean levels are rising. This is terrible for us, and now we you're having—it's almost like stuck in an argument with the United States and China and, and other areas around arguing over who gets to be the big boss around the area. Do you do you think that actually the Pacific Island nations are they feeling heard by these big nations? I think that you described it very well, Nathan. People are frustrated here. There's quite a lot that needs to be talked about around climate change. But look, Anthony Albanese arrives into the country around midday today, and when that happens, people say the same thing off of Australia. What will you do for us in terms of your coal projects? Will you hear our cries that you're not approved anymore? So what I'm hoping is that having the new Australian Prime Minister come into the country might just bring the conversation back to climate change. But no, People don't uh, feel heard. The, the countries of the region keep saying it. And the, the Fijian Prime Minister said it the last time Penny Wong was here to say, stop talking to us about everything else. Talk to us about climate change. Talk to us about the issues that are important to us. Hopefully that narrative will change today and we will hear a lot more conversation around Australia's coal projects, a lot more conversation too around the Vanuatu uh, request for the International Court of Justice to change the way climate change is perceived. And so um, maybe things will change as we get much closer to the main event of the week, which is the leaders' retreat tomorrow, Nathan. Yeah, Lithe, thank you very much for being here. This year's out of Suva. Uh, Lithe Movono. The professionals of the RNZ ship uh, morning reports. And they're up after six. And uh, joining us is Susie Ferguson. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, I'm well. How are you? I'm jealous that you're going to be sleeping in and waking up at a decent time <laughs> I will miss our chats quite frankly and I will uh, we miss might our even, chats also we might even just call you at quarter to six every now and then just out of the blue you know just oh sweet that's fine part of yeah. the thing I don't want you to feel yeah. 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 What's, ha- yeah. what's happening today on Morning Report well, we're going to be hearing about this shooting in West Auckland last night. A woman dead after that. Uh, we'll bring you all the latest details uh, as they come into us here at RNZ. Also, government agencies have a facial recognition system which can check people's identity when they get a COVID vaccine. Um, you were hearing there, of course, about what's going on at the Pacific Islands Forum today. We'll bring you uh, up to speed with that. Uh, Kamala Harris, the US Vice President, will be dialling into the PIF 
earlier, um, rather later on today. Hmm. Uh, and also, of course, we will bring you the latest uh, in our series on air quality. Um, Farah Hancock's out, been out with our carbon dioxide monitor again, this time in classrooms, and you will find out uh, what some of those numbers stack up to be there, and it's all coming up after six. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Susie Ferguson, who's here with Corandan after six. Well, more than 35,000 people will pack into Wellington's Caketon slash stadium, as many other names with it, uh, to watch the decider between the All Blacks and this rampant Irish team and squad, and the uh, test is on Saturday night. But like a lot of workplaces across the country, COVID and winter bugs have hit the stadium staff hard. So this coupled with record low unemployment and a dearth of overseas visitors has led to an 11th hour recruitment drive to get enough game night staff. Joining me now is the Chief Executive of Sky Stadium. Here's Shane Harmon. Kia ora, Shane. Good morning. Now, um, how, how short-staffed are you? Look, we're not too bad. We're probably sitting currently at 90% of normal, which is not a bad result. Like, we always knew we were not going to be at pre-COVID levels. But we've had a good influx in the last couple of days and uh, we're still hoping that we'll provide a good experience on the day. So how did you tempt them? Because there's many businesses going, oh, I just couldn't get anyone. How did you manage to get at least up to 90? That's quite good. Yeah, well, I, um, I just put out something over social media the last couple of days and um, just uh, this good rallying of the community here in Wellington. And uh, I think with the game being pretty much sold out, um, although all of these people will be working. It's probably the only way to get into Sky Stadium um, over the next couple of days. So um, just a lot of people were obviously interested in such a big event. I mean, this is the this is the most anticipated sport event we've had in, uh, in Wellington in years. Um, we've never held a decider of a three-test series before, and there's just so much excitement about it. So I think that was part of it as well. Shane, one of the, the things that New Zealanders are just expert in, incredibly experts in, is showing up two minutes before kickoff and going, I couldn't get a bear and chips and I couldn't get to my seat in time. So tell us about this, about if your staff numbers are down a little, how much extra time should people schedule you know, into their arrival of getting there? Well, look, I mean, I'm just, um, I'm just back from overseas and, um, you know, everywhere in the world has changed. Um, you know, getting on a getting on a flight, we're being told now to go to the airport a lot earlier than what we were previously. Um, really, just to be prepared. Um, I was told in Dublin to get to an airport four and a half hours in advance, and of course, to breeze through security in half an hour. Oh. Um, but um, but the prior week, um, people were not getting through security after hours, so that was the warning. So in this scenario, we're just saying to people, look, get there early. It's a massive game. Be in your seat before the before the hacker and the start of the game. So we're recommending people get to the stadium ninety minutes before, ninety minutes before kickoff. Um, we're sending uh, emails and text messages to all ticket purchases this week. We'll be active on social media, pushing that message. So um, the part that fans can play is to get to the stadium early. Yes, in Wellington, we do have a notoriously late arrival crowd because we're a downtown venue, and that's one of the advantages. You know, you can. Uh, Go to the pub or restaurant beforehand, get a bite to eat and leave at the last minute. But we've got temporary seats in place for the first time since 2017. Um, we're, we're close to 38,000 in capacity. So with all those additional people coming in, get there early. Absolutely. Um, and I asked earlier on in the show, have people had uh, COVID or the flu or maybe both? And how did you do that? Shane, you've come through this. So first of all, it's good, good that you're, uh, you're sounding fit as a fiddle right now. But uh, let's go comparison shopping. What were they like? 
Um, the day I got back from Ireland, I contracted COVID. Um, first couple of days were a little bit rough, but by the time I got out of isolation, the following Friday, I was fine. Yeah. Um, a couple of days, um, feeling fine, and then uh, contacted influenza, and um, that was probably on a scale four to five times worse for me than uh, than COVID. And um, yeah, the, the the flu is a silent one at the moment, I think, because um, a lot of people that have had it have described it to me as a lot worse than, than COVID. So, yeah. you know, we're saying to everybody, regardless of, um, you know, what you have, if you're unwell, please stay away. Um, and, and that will certainly be the case with staff. And that's why we've got to push for this extra recruitment because, you know, it's still four days away. Um, you know, some people will get sick between now and then. Mm-hmm. And, and we're saying to all staff in particular, you know, don't, please don't come if you're sick. Yeah, thank you very much, Shane Harmon, uh, the Chief Executive of Sky Stadium. Yes, I did ask earlier on uh, if, if you've had them both. Uh, here's one. Emily in Carpentry says, Kia ora, Nathan. Yes, I've had both flu and COVID this year. Flu felt worse, but was over quicker. Still feel like my energy isn't back yet after COVID. Uh, people should wear masks. Used a different word, but I changed that. Uh, to show respect for our vulnerable. I'm 41 with four school-age kids. There's heaps of bugs around this year, and I worry uh, for my uh, awesome mama. John in Queenstown said, I haven't had the COVID or the flu, but I've been observing anti-mask morons in the supermarket with the brain of a gnat. Uh, that's a G-N-A-T, uh, who who want me to get it. Uh, that's John in Queenstown. Uh, a non, no, I haven't, but probably because I'm wearing a F mask. Uh, Maureen and Nathan, uh, voice of the Nathan, thanks for your program. It's so cheerful and varied. Oh, that's wonderful. Great energy. And it's good to see, Liz, you might have uh, dodged uh, this uh, thing so far. I mean, uh, look, there are great concerns. These are safety concerns. There are a way that you can show concern and care for the rest of the community. And senior citizens are fearing complacency around mask use, and uh, they think it's putting their lives at risk. This comes as we've heard the country's battling that second wave uh, and variant of COVID too, as well as an onslaught of those winter illnesses like cold like the flu. Health officials urging the public to mask up and get vaccinated to protect themselves and others, but Grey Power say that uh, people are not either not wearing masks at all or they're wearing them incorrectly. Joining us now is Grey Power President Jan Pentecost. Jan, thank you very much for being here. That's fine. Now, I mean, you know, we just heard people there talking about masks. Can you tell us about this complacency that you're seeing around mask use? Um, well, I, I do think that um, I, I am definitely noticing that many people, especially inside at meetings and in other enclosed places, are they not wearing masks, or if they are wearing them, they have been pulled down under their nose. Mm. Um, so that that is a concern for us and for, for our older folk. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be. It's, it, I guess it's got to be making senior citizens anxious about this, right? Yes, I, I think there is a group of our older people who are very anxious because at this, this particular variant, they are, we're all being told that older people are more at risk and they're more likely to end up in hospital and more likely to die. Um, so some of them are not leaving home and some of them actually haven't really mixed in society since the pandemic began. So I guess there is um, quite a lot of anxiety about this uh, this you know, pandemic. Oh, and that could cause, you know, people to feel very isolated and cut off too, couldn't it? Being, oh, I think there's a real concern about social isolation. I think that, um, you know, we we as um, an organisation that advocate for older people are particularly worried about this group of people. Well, what do you think needs to happen and what do you hope can happen? 
Well, I I heard you talk earlier about uh, vulnerable people, and I really do hope that um, all of us can remember that. Remember that older people are, as I said, more vulnerable, um, and perhaps wear their masks um, more, especially in in, in sorry in indoor settings. Um, and if they're visiting older people, um, you know that they will. Um, Perhaps just give it that little bit more thought. Um, perhaps encourage their older folk to have the booster shot um, and all of the other things that we're asked to do, but particularly when they are talking face-to-face with older people, that they ensure that they've got their mask on and they've got it on properly and that they are distanced a little bit as well. Mm. And and I know that people have talked about settings, changes or what have you. I know that can come from a central government, but really for us as citizens, masks, boosters, I mean, that's the best way that, that we can help, right? Yes, yes, I certainly think that we can help that. And I, I, we can help. And I actually really agree with um, Professor Michael Baker when he says that the risk is dictated by the behaviour of other people, which means it's everybody's responsibility to help bring down that risk. And that's especially important for our older folk. Yeah. Well, Jan, thank you very much for being up to speak to us about that this morning. Joining us here from Grey Power, that's the President, Jan Pentecost. I, I know the whole, oh, look, we're all moving on and that. Yeah, that's fine, but you can still move on with this. Uh, life isn't 2017 anymore. I don't think we can do that the same way. When you have a look, look at our figures, nation. Look at our figures and have a look. There were once very proud figures because this has come back on us now as citizens. This isn't just like, right, you, you know, let the... Let the government run everything. Now it comes back to us. Do you have that respect for your fellow Kiwis? Do you want to spread it? Do you want to not? Just keep yourself safe. Just keep it if you can. Morning Report is it? There's a little lecture for me. Morning uh, Report is next with Susie and Corin. Uh, remember, you can always listen to First Up whenever you like by downloading our podcast and then play it to friends. Or if you want to listen to us live, organise it at 5 o'clock in the morning. We'll be back in your ears. Up or right.